I'm amazed how many people own stocks. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Podcast. My name's Paul, and each episode, me and the lads get together to talk about the stocks, stock market news, and finance in general. Quick disclaimer, you shouldn't consider anything in this podcast as personal financial advice. If you need such advice, go to a financial advisor. And please remember, when investing in any form, your capital is at risk. So sit back, relax, and let the lads fill you in with all the stock market news of the week. The sucker's going up. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Show. I'm here with Paul, and I'm here with Steve, and we've got loads of stuff to talk about. It's been a busy kind of week in the markets this week. Stuff's been going, well, mainly up. But we're here to talk about stocks that we would buy if we were starting out investing, things that we would think about for new investors. We've got some more stocks for Paul specifically because it's always good to have him here and we think a lot about him when he's away. We spend loads of time thinking about stocks for him that we definitely don't just write down earlier today. But it's the 12th of January. Earnings season is on the way. Steve, how are you? Are you excited? Yeah, Steve, I don't know if I should be looking forward to this or not, to be honest, because I think we could be in for a rough period. We, we could not. I really do hate to guess these things. But in terms of how uh, how I'm changing my investment or if I'm changing my investment, I'm, I'm definitely not. I think I always think it's best to be in the market rather than rather than not. So uh, that's how it'll be. But in terms of stocks, like, I've had a cracking week. Um, this week's just been like up for me pretty much pretty much consistently. Uh, I, haven't, I don't think I've had a single red day. Just looking now. Uh, it's Thursday night that we're recording this, and I'm up uh, about seven percent on the week, which is which is a really really positive uh, performance. How about you, Paul? Where are you, Paul? Oh man, um, right. I've got uh, a brilliant week started this week. I am zero point three six percent currently away from being in the green in my uh, unrealized gains, so or unrealized losses as it is right now. And today I put a lot of money in the market. It's been on Instagram today uh, to say that I put ten k back into the market. It's it's all there. It's back in. I bought a few new stocks to do and it's a shame that you find this stocks for me today because um i've already bought a load and i haven't got any money left so these new stocks that you're trying to put forward to me they're, they're definitely not getting bought not in the near term anyway as far as um the earnings reports go uh, i'm optimistic i'm optimistic i think a lot of this is going to be i think there's going to be a lot of surprises to the upside that's a prediction that i'm going to make right now i think you'll have you'll have There'll be a bit of sandbagging going on in certain stocks, and I think you're going to see some of these companies. Uh, yeah, I think they're going to do okay. I don't think it's going to be as bad as we think. The, the markets have definitely rallied going into earnings season. Uh, JP Morgan, I think, is, does that give tomorrow? JP Morgan starts tomorrow. Uh, so the kickoff of earnings season starts tomorrow. So we'll know by Sunday when this comes out, whether or not it's it's done well. JP Morgan uh, released a write down today on their website that they paid 175 million for. It's uh, not a good sign because that's going to pop up uh, in the earnings call tomorrow, I'm sure, which is going to have an effect on the stock. But that's done very well recently. So who knows? Who knows what's going to happen tomorrow? It's uh, is is this for you, Steve? Is this like one of the most uncertain earnings uh, that we've had in recent times? Uh, for me, I think it's probably the one I've thought least about. I mean, I'm expecting this kind of recession mm-hmm. thing to show up soon. Uh, that's supposed to be kind of on the cards. I don't have a strong view as to whether I think it's going to come out in this round of earnings or the next round of earnings or the one after. But I guess I'm expecting things to to slow down eventually so 
I guess it's no bad thing from my perspective, by the way, that you've been piling money in and haven't got any to buy the stock that I'm about to try and suggest to you because it keeps going up at the moment and it's a lot worse value than it was when I started thinking about it about three days ago. Uh, in my own kind of life, though, nothing much has been happening, so I'm going to do what everyone does on YouTube, I think, when they haven't got anything really to offer content-wise. Here's a picture of my child. Uh, he started eating solid foods. Oh, there I you thought go. you were going to ask uh, for a Q&A. It's Q &A. a good picture. So enjoy. <laughs> I thought you were going to ask for a Q&A. That's usually what you people on YouTube do when they've got nothing else they can talk about, right? <laughs> I tried that. He doesn't answer any questions, though. Oh, nice. Stay tight lips. Nice, nice, nice. Oh, go on then. Uh, should, should we start with the uh, stocks that you, you're planning on uh, talking about today? Mm hmm. Sure. Steve, you want to go first? Uh, yeah, Steve, I'll, I'll kick us off with the first seven stocks, sort of like uh, give you a little bit up front that all of these are actually from my portfolio because I was uh, quite late to writing these. Um, because we had no other content. Um, so my first stock is uh, was a late swap in because I realised who the guys hadn't taken it, uh, and it's Disney. And uh, I really want to give you just the stock, and I think we've got a couple of lines on each one because otherwise we'll be here all day. Uh, but Disney, a uh, huge IP li library, gives Disney... Uh, a really diverse range of content that's just going to be unique to Disney. Uh, it looks expensive if you just lazily look at the metrics and you probably even spot a decent pile of debt, but, but there's no worries about Disney, uh, not being able to manage this. They'll, they'll, they'll sell with this level of leverage. Uh, I would expect Disney to make sort of Netflix level margins on Disney Plus in the future. And when it does, everything about this stock will look a little bit cheaper and it'll still have all the other benefits that it has today. Uh, my second stock is Forterra. Now you may not have come across this one. Uh, it's a bit of a, a, a bit of a sleepy stock in the UK. Um, UK desperately needs houses, and at the moment we cannot make enough bricks to make those houses, so we have to import them. Forterra is currently remodelling all of its factories, whilst it's a bit quieter in the building trade, to actually fulfil that brick need. Um, it should do well as we leave higher interest rates and we start building houses again, start doing extensions, etc. Bricks aren't actually a commodity like you'd think they are. Um, when the first thing you do when you do uh, an extension or something like that is you have to get a brick match. Forterra make the London bricks, and it's in about a third of our stock in the UK. So I would argue they'd almost definitely have a moat. Uh, my third stock is Four Corners Property Trust. So this is a pretty cheap looking uh, real estate stock. It's in a, resili uh, a recession resilient part of the US economy. Uh, its customers are people like Burger King and Olive Garden, uh, companies like that. Um, it's got smart leadership. It's conservatively run. It's, uh, it gives you a healthy capital return, dividend north of 5%. Uh, base rent is growing at about 11%. Kega and base property is growing about 14% Kega and all of those properties are triple net which means that the expenses are all passed on to the clients so um, it's good Progeny is a fertility benefits insurance company fertility rates are, are falling throughout the world so it's, it's a really worrying trend uh, for the human race essentially but uh the company addresses this in the us um its stock price has actually already been hit hard by by the layoffs despite them actually growing their covered amount in the last year up to 5.4 million uh this number is actually still forecasted to uh to rapidly grow and and to not decrease so uh not an expensive stock at the moment and one that i think is uh, definitely worth a look at 
Uh, Take Two is my next stock. It's the owner of Rockstar Games, the maker to, makers of Grand Theft Auto 6, uh, already issuing for the biggest game in the world whenever it releases. It's going to generate significant revenues, we know that. If they monetize the online version of it, like they did with its predecessor, GTA 5, uh, this could run for nearly a decade. Um, look out for more mobile content this year too, because they've just acquired Zynga, and we are waiting for that to bear fruit. Uh, Salesforce is my number six. I said to Steve the other day that we, uh, we're at peak fear with Mark Benioff, the CEO. I think they've cut staffing back very deep, including a lot of people at the top, which is, which is unusual. And their sales cycles have almost definitely lengthened. Uh, but it won't be like this forever. And Salesforce has really, really ambitious plans, starting with a very large buyback, which definitely points to a more sort of shareholder friendly environment, um, shareholder friendly business going forward. Uh, my last one is uh, uh, Sonova. It's a, it's a Swiss stock. And a few years back, you'd have looked at this and said it was a little bit sleepy. Um, Specialises in mid to higher end hearing aids and listening aids. Uh, today, it does all of that. Plus, it has a robust clinic network throughout the world. And it also owns the Sennheiser headphone brand. So this is a company that could be in your ear in one way or another for all of your life. <laughs> lots of things end up in my ear um steve uh for for that's quite an advanced um portfolio i think uh for beginners that's that's my only downside to that i guess but really interesting for terror actually I, ju I was just looking them up after you uh mentioned them there very interesting financials i've got there but very terrible um a bit of a terrible uh, past six years they've had on the market. They've basically been flat, haven't they? So, uh, yeah, very interesting one that you picked up there. That's good. They do pay a big old dividend trading sideways, though. You picked up about 5% yeah. a year or something like that. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't have much by the stock going anywhere. but Yeah, and buybacks as well. So that helps that dividend grow as well over time. Yeah, five five percent mm. dividend on the on the flat. I mean, when I say it's flat, it's five years it's up fifteen percent. So uh, you are still getting like six six percent a year there, which is it's good, difficult to judge that because it's it's just had a big fall. If you was taking it back from just a few months previously, you'd have been looking at a much a much oh, sweeter it's, yeah. it's fell with the general housing market. Yeah, yeah, pretty good. So Steve W, what you got for your? Uh, seven beginner investment this is basically if we were going to start a, a beginner investment portfolio right this is the if we were going out we we're starting with 700 quid today and just going right what we're going to buy in the market or what we're going to split that 700 quid with between seven uh, you know seven uh, different stocks yeah it's interesting so steve appears to have gone for a kind of theme of stuff that you've heard of under names that you probably haven't heard of like the yeah. sennheiser brand and the people who own burger king's restaurants and uh all that kind of thing and london brick company and so on people probably heard of those products but probably don't necessarily know the names of the companies that own them i think i've mostly gone for more obviously known things and then a couple of weird ones so like steve i've tried to mix things up a little bit by market cap size and by what exchange they're listed on. I don't think I've mixed it up quite as much as he has, but here's what I got. So I started with Amazon because I thought it was a fairly obvious choice. They have a fairly obvious looking sort of business model. They're another one where, like Disney from Steve, if you are lazy and just look at a PE ratio, it will look more expensive than it actually is because they've had a big write down this year, which is bumping down their earnings and bumping up their PE. 
But what they have is Amazon Prime, which gives them a line into people's homes. It gives them a source of revenue without them having to do anything. And that lets them drive down prices and beat out competition, more or less. And they do that fairly brutally effectively. There's Amazon Web Services, which helps push things along with a much higher margin business than retail. You know what this company does. I suspect that one of the things that impresses me most about it, actually, is kind of anecdotally, a lot of people that hate it can't help but use it. Uh, especially I found this around Christmas quite a bit. People want to buy stuff. They think, I don't want to go through Amazon because I don't like the uh, disunionized workers and so on. And they end up on Amazon buying it anyway, uh, despite themselves. And I think that's quite a powerful business model. So Amazon's kind of the start of mine. Predictably, at number two for me, and these are only in alphabetical order, they're not in order of importance particularly, or at least I think I got them in alphabetical order, is uh, Berkshire Hathaway, which is Warren Buffett's company. It brings in a load of money through insurance and then goes off and invests that money in other places, mostly tries not to lose it, and pretty much tends to outperform other people by just not doing silly things with it. So they have a really well-funded utilities operation. They have a really well-funded railroad. They have uh, a massive stake in Apple. And they have an insurance operation that is one of the better ones around for property casualty in the US. Lots more you can look into with that, but that's a basic overview. Defensively run company that grows steadily and pretty reliably. Third, I got Costco because it's kind of expensive, but I really like this business model. The more I read about it and the more I listen to things about it, the more I really think I should probably just get on with buying this myself. I don't own this. So of my <laughs> portfolio of seven I've got here, I own four of them and I don't own the other three. Costco is one that I don't, but this is another company with a membership model, uh, and its membership model means that it makes money, it can push down cost of things it sells to people, it sells them in these enormous comedy large things, which means that they're even cheaper. It has a bunch of people who are convinced that it's not worth shopping anywhere else. I was listening to the Business Breakdown podcast on this, and they said they opened a, a store in, I think, Reykjavik, and pretty much the entire country of Iceland had signed up within the first uh, sort of month or so <laughs> things are more expensive there it's quite an expensive country in general but they can quite easily get underneath the margins of everyone else and keep their costs lower i think that's a powerful business there's loads of other things you can say about it but ultimately it comes down to just low prices to consumers and the ability to make a load of money while you do it i've got a uk one uh, my uk one is diploma which is a FTSE 250 industrial distribution company you probably haven't heard of this unless they're specific to your work somehow and you probably haven't really heard of any of their other products either but what they do is they distribute and they have an enormous base for distributing annoying little components of things that break on machines uh, and you effectively they're quite cheap to replace but you can't operate a machine without them so if you've got a massive piece of equipment you don't want that switched off because it's not making money for you diploma will get your component to you faster than anything else they also have a kind of healthcare business where they can distribute equipment and so on and consumables they're one of i think my favorite uk companies another one is endeavor mining which uh, is also on my list i own diploma sorry don't own endeavor made a horrible mess of describing this over on jkr's channel so i won't talk about what happened two years ago because i don't know <laughs> but here's the way endeavor works they pull gold out of the ground and they pull it out of the ground cheaper than anybody else does mostly because they do it in africa where you don't have to pay people very much uh is the brutal fact about it but lowest extraction costs in um the gold space means that they'll make money whatever the gold price is, as long as nothing happens to their mines and operations, which might well happen. It tends to be a bit more politically unstable there than it does in, say, Australia. But uh, it's on my list because I think a low-cost gold miner is a good place to start for pretty much any investor. 
Federal Realty is on my list. That's my REIT because Paul stole the one that I wanted and he'd already got there to it. So Federal Realty is a retail properties REIT. And retail properties are ones that if you're going to own one, I think you need some reason for thinking we can fend off this e-commerce thing that's coming down the tracks. Well, one way to do it is by owning Amazon and then you'll be exposed to the e-commerce thing as well. But um, if you're looking for a REIT in retail that's sort of reasonably cheap because people are worried about e-commerce, and might have some resistance to it. Federal Realty focuses on properties that are near or in city centres, so they tend to be high-quality outlets. And if you think people are going to start closing their stores, then uh, you should probably think that's going to happen to the least effective stores first, which tend to not be the ones that are housed in their kind of premium locations. So it's a REIT that I think will stand up better to the threat from e-commerce and other things. They're also multi-use buildings, which means that uh, there's some resistance there as well. Last on my list is a company called Svenska Handelsbanken, uh, which is a company that I've not mentioned on this show before. I think I don't know that we've ever talked about it. I only found out about it recently because um, the conveyancing firm that I'm using to do my uh, house transaction at the moment instructed me to send some stuff to a bank account with, uh, with them. Um, but they're a really interesting company. So they're a Swedish based bank. Uh, they're very, very conservatively run, very profitable. They have an interesting model that I will come back to in future weeks. But one way to look at how effective a bank is is to see what happened to it in 2008. So basically a big crisis and everyone's loans started defaulting and so on. JP Morgan's loans uh, defaulted at a rate of about 3.5%. Svenska Handelsbanken reached loan losses of 0.2%. So they're way, 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 way under JP Morgan. I think they're pretty much bulletproof. They're a decentralized organization, which is kind of interesting. They're owned by their employees. They trade at about the right level for a bank. Their market cap is in kroner, so I'm not entirely sure how big they are as an organization, but it's about 300 billion kroner. And I think uh, something like a pound is something like 0.079 kroner. So you can convert that in your head or punch it into Google or tell me I'm wrong. Uh, but those are my seven. Yeah, the way I can. I know Handelsbanken. We have a Handelsbanken in Hull. Would you believe? <clears throat> Handelsbanken. You what? what? In Hull. We have a Handelsbanken <laughs> in Hull. Yeah, we do. Uh, oddly, wow. I don't. It's right on the marina as well, where like in the nice part. Of oh, Hull, but... Is that because of the uh, ties with Hull and the oil service over in Scandinavia? Is it, is it because of the ferry ports? I've no idea. <laughs> yeah. I've literally no idea. I'm. I'm going to say yes. I think that's why it is. I don't know what we have nearby. I, I know we we have we had a big fishing arm, which may have been something to do with the Scandinavians coming over, maybe stop offs. I don't know. We was yeah. a big port at one point in Hull, but I yeah I, I yeah. couldn't tell you why Handelsbanken are here. Uh, but that could I, be. I, it. But I know Handelsbanken quite well because they have they have yeah they have personal relationships with all of the clients. So it's not one of those places where you ring up and you get a different guy every time you ring in. It's a you know you have this guy he manages your account. It's kind of like a more like a business relationship than a mm. than a than another one. But Federal Realty is an interesting one because uh, moving out into the suburbs and moving back into the cities is another cycle that happens in in, in um, economic cycles. At the moment, we're currently having a rush for space, so we're moving out uh, as a as a race. We're moving out of cities into into the suburbs. But but that always reverses at some point when cities become cool again. And the best time you would say to buy something that's cyclical is when it's coming out of cycle or out of cycle. Um, and that's probably what's happening with federal realty, I would say. 
Mm-hmm, definitely. With with a lot of REITs in general, I've been looking very closely. Uh, ARE uh, is looking like it's coming down. Four Corners looking like it's coming down. Prologis is coming down and never comes down that far, does it? Which is very annoying. And there's a couple of others which I'll be talking about maybe on some of my videos coming up soon. Uh, my seven stocks that I, I, you know what, I'm going to change it up because I, I was going to see how you guys got on and uh, in, in talking about your stocks. And I, I don't want to just list off a load of stocks. So let's, uh, you've got, you've got my list, but I'm going to do that in one of my own videos pretty soon. But I did earlier go to chat GPT and ask chat GPT what uh, I, the specific thing that I put into ChatGPT was I said, recommend me a seven stock portfolio for a new dividend investor. It replied with, I'm sorry, I'm not able to recommend specific stocks or portfolios for the market. And it gives me five odd reasons why I shouldn't uh, invest. But I did reword it a little bit and I asked it, what are the top seven dividend investment stocks for a new investor? And what I'm going to ask you is, uh, what do you think stock one? Um, I have an idea, but I think top of my list would be one that I know is on yours. So am I on the wrong track there then? You're on the wrong track. Yeah, definitely. Go on. What do you think is the number one according to the best AI system that's out there at the moment? Thing is, it hasn't had access to the internet. Yeah, I was going to say, hasn't had access to the internet for a few years, so I assume we, we this could be something that we're not, uh, that's not going to immediately jump out of us, so, uh, I, I don't know, I'll go on Microsoft, why not? I love it, I love it, uh, Microsoft nowhere near, that's pretty good, but Price Gamble, number two, well done Steve, I like that, it's very good, because what you've got to do oh. here, which I've noticed, mm. is you basically, you haven't got to, you haven't got to assess the, the how good or brilliant the company is, you've just got to, basically got to, think what's mentioned the most on the internet and then just like work it back that way johnson and johnson makes it number one and i only i only guess that one myself because i see it all the time but yeah it was probably a toss-up between the two however i went on and i asked it what are the seven best stocks for new investors so this is all round in general not just dividend stocks tell me what do you think is the number one stock on the stock market, according to ChatGPT? It's not Tesla, is it? No, it's not Tesla. That surprised me. Not even on the list. Very good. That's 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 good. Google. Oh. Google. Google makes it into number five. What I'll tell you is number one, we've already mentioned it today. And Steve W said it was really obvious as well. <laughs> Being Amazon.com is number one. Uh, number two is Apple. I think everybody knows Apple already. Number three, go on, give me number three. Can anyone guess it? It's quite hard. Netflix. Is it Meta? It's Berkshire Hathaway. Better for Facebook comes in at number four, number five, Google, number six, uh, Microsoft, and number seven. Uh, probably doesn't really surprise me here. I'm wondering if this thing is just giving me the uh, top seven list by market cap here because number seven is Visa. I'd have to go through and check that uh, to check that ahead, but they're basically giving me it's giving me the top seven by market cap there. I think um, the real yeah, could have been maybe. Maybe a few years ago, yeah. 
But what do you reckon? What do you reckon? Do you think uh, ChatGBT can is giving you a good starter investment list there? I've heard worse. I've definitely heard worse from um, people. I'd be interested to know what ChatGPT says about it. I mean, it's it's a fairly undiversified outfit compared to what Steve and I were offering. To be fair, it's all US. It's all quite big. It's all it's all sort of tech or tech adjacent. I think so. If I were is, starting out with an investment, I, I would worry about running headlong into that lot. But I, I've heard worse ideas. They're all solid businesses. It says here that they are the seven top Missing stocks Aston that are Martin. recommended due to new investors for their stability and potential from growth. And it also adds at the bottom there, uh, it's important to note that past performance of a stock does not guarantee future results. Blah, 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 blah. Do not endorse. Diversification is key. It says here that diversif- diversification is key, but then it's offered me seven stocks which aren't particularly diversified at all uh on the top dividend stocks you've got johnson and johnson procter and gamble coca-cola at&t comes in at fourth probably not one of the better ones uh pepsico at number five walmart at six and intel corporation at seven which is probably a good turnaround play right <laughs> that is steve b's nightmare <laughs> portfolio <laughs> yeah that's an that's an avoid <laughs> <laughs> love it love it love it so yeah uh, i i would say either of those two portfolios would be quite happy to own if i'm honest with you uh, you know in my own personal investing i would tweak them a little bit but um if you were going to go straight out there you go just uh, go to chat dbt in the next couple of weeks ask it what to invest in and it'll tell you it'll give you a reasonable portfolio do you think if it gets acquired it will just say buy microsoft all the time <laughs> I have just, uh, I, I, guys, I've just uh, written in, write me a poem about dividend investing. Are you ready for this? Dividends, dividends, a steady flow, Ooh. a high sign of companies' health we all know. Investing in stocks, a gamble, they say, but dividends bring a ray of hope in a different way. Research, research is the key to success. Look for companies that pay without distress. Consistency, consistency is what we desire. Dividends that grow like a never-ending fire. Diversify, diversify to mitigate the risk. A portfolio with different stocks is sure to be brisk. Monitor, monitor financials with care. A company's health is a dividend's best pair. Rebalance, rebalance to keep it all in check. Dividend investing, a smart move, a smart deck. Dividends, dividends, a steady flow, a sign of a company's health we all know. Wow, that is not bad at all. Mm, I write the adverts for this show and I write things like that. <laughs> and and I'm not worried that. yet, <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm not a million miles from worrying. It was better than I was expecting it to be. Um, I, I quite yeah. like the kind of repetition of words at the start of things, right? Monitor, monitor, mm. dividends, dividends, and so on and so forth. I, I'm nicking yeah. that for the next one, which will definitely be written by me and not by <laughs> ChatGPT, by the way, if anyone would like to sponsor us. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I, no, I'm surprised. Well, they just produced that in in seconds, which is incredible, isn't it? It's, uh, that's quite interesting. Okay, let's move All on right. to uh, two stocks that you've got that I'm not going to buy. Do you want to go first, mm. Steve? Yeah, sure. One last thing, though. So I was quite impressed by that thing on ChatGPT, but can it do this? Hmm? Hmm? Right. Uh... I can't even do that. (laughs) (laughs) 
buy stock that Paul's not going to buy, and it's probably no bad thing, is a bank. We were talking about it earlier, or at least talking about this segment earlier in like the first time that we've actually discussed anything in advance of the show in what well, must be about 12 months or so now. But uh, Paul knows it's a bank, and we said I said it wasn't Citigroup, and I said it wasn't Barclays, and he said, unless it's the obvious Bank of America, it's either some random regional thing or else it's Canadian, uh, was what he said. And he's correct. Um, it is, in fact, the obvious Bank of America. Uh, but I... You don't own this, do you? Nope. Good. Uh, you own JP Morgan, so I had to try and find a reason to not choose that. But uh, let's talk about Bank of America a little bit then, because when I looked at this more and more, I was sort of surprised that you don't own this, because it feels to me like what I think about when I think about dividend growth investing. So let's start from the beginning then for the moment. It's a bank, so it has two revenue streams. And in the case of Bank of America, they're roughly even-sized according to their last 10Q. They're not always, but they were in the most recent one. So there's this thing called net interest income, which is what happens when you take in deposits and pay some interest on them and lend out money and get some interest back on them. So current account deposits versus uh, mortgages. And you make it money by lending it out at higher rates and you take it in at. That's where your kind of net interest income comes from. And the other way you make money as a bank is by basically charging people for stuff. So that's fees and that could be credit card fees or wealth management fees or investment banking fees or any of that. And these two parts of Bank of America's stuff, they wax and wane depending on the macroeconomic environment. But at the moment, they're roughly even. So let's have a look at the two bits of them separately then. Net interest income, the, the lending in and out stuff, basically. So what do you need to be good at this? Well, you need two things. And fairly obviously, you need the ability to get in deposits fairly cheap and you need the ability to lend them out uh, pretty much at size, importantly. So interest rates will determine what kind of return you can get on them. But being able to lend them out at scale is kind of useful. So Bank of America ticks some boxes here. It has a pretty large branch footprint. It's the third largest in the US behind. Uh, you can probably tell me which ones, Steve. I would go with JP Morgan or Chase, I would assume, because they bought quite a large branch network with that, and I would say Wells mm -hmm. Fargo. Uh, you would be correct in both cases, but I'm not recommending JP Morgan, and I'm not recommending Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo is currently restructuring its mortgage stuff, and I haven't had time to think about that yet. Uh, and JP Morgan, Paul already owns, so that's not allowed. Uh, but nonetheless, third biggest is Bank of America, and they have some pretty good scale here. And one thing they've been working on recently is trying to join up a lot of their services. So by expanding their kind of footprint in branches, they're trying to join up places where they might have current accounts and mortgages, but not credit cards or the other way around and providing people with uh, investment saving services where they currently have a big credit card present, that kind of thing. They are apparently more so than JP Morgan or even Wells Fargo, one of the most interest rate sensitive banks, which is an interesting thing to be at this current time because interest rates are going up. And we saw today that economic data from the UK, uh, the US, sorry, indicates that inflation is coming down, but um, it's still fairly high and I think rates have some way to go. And I think Bank of America stands to be a fairly big kind of beneficiary of this. The usual worry, and we heard this from a kind of UK Squawk Box uh, interview earlier, is that if rates get too high, the problem you have is that people start defaulting on their mortgages all over the place. And that thing that looked like an asset on your balance sheet as a bank suddenly turns into a massive great hole on your balance sheet as a bank. And this has happened a lot around sort of 2008. But Bank of America has worked quite hard, along with a lot of other banks in fairness, but them in particular, to rebalance themselves away from subprime and consumer lending since sort of 2008. They're non-performing loans. So these are loans that are about 90 days past due 
less than 1% of their total, they're less than half a percent of their total, actually. And then net charge-offs, uh, so net char- charge-offs basically are loans that are pretty much delinquent, uh, not just overdue. Um, and net charge-offs here is the value of the loans that they've pretty much had go delinquent, minus anything they've managed to recover uh, on that, is about 0.2% of their total. That's not too bad. They have, like every bank, a massive cash allowance put aside to cover loan defaults. That covers about 1.2% of their loans. Is that likely to be enough? Well, I was reading the Morningstar forecast. They're looking at about half of that in a kind of worst-case scenario. So I guess they're reasonably well covered for staying out of actual trouble. So the lending side looks all right to me here. That takes us on to the kind of fees and stuff uh, side. So what do you need to be good at fees and stuff? Well, you need to be pretty big, basically. You need to be able to offer size, you need to be able to offer scope, and you need to be able to go and get people and find ways that are convenient for them. So they're a top four credit card issuer. They have Merrill Lynch for their investment stuff, which they bought back after the kind of collapse of that bank, more or less. And its raging size gives it a big joined up force of investment services and brokerage and credit card and everything that commands fees, basically. So what they can do is bring loads of their stuff under the same roof, which is convenient and helpful. And people uh, generally join up to their stuff and don't switch very easily, so it seems. Anyway, enough about the kind of boring qualitative stuff. Let's get on to the things that dividend growth investors care about, which is valuation and dividends. So here's how you value a bank, more or less. You take the return on equity and then you work out what you have you want as a return and then you work out what you have to pay for that equity in terms of a price to book. So Bank of America has a return on equity of just over sort of 10% or so. It's a price to book of about 1.1. Last time I looked it up, you're up to 1.15 now. So that takes you to a sort of 8 9% return per year. It's got an interesting kind of buyback and dividend approach here. So over the last 10 years, it's paid out $46 billion, as rounded down slightly, uh, in dividends. And that's grown by, well, Paul, what would you consider to be a good dividend growth rate over 10 years? Uh, to be honest with you, you I, think, I think I already know that. Isn't Bank of America's already like 5% something like that? Which is reasonable. It's growing a lot faster than that. It's been growing by about 36% over the last 10 years, partly because it started from nearly nothing. Uh, But it's been growing at 17% on average over the last five years. And it's easy to grow your dividend like that when you do what they do, which is buy back a hell of a lot of stock. So if you're a dividend investor and you're looking at Bank of America's dividend and you're seeing it yields about 2.5%, maybe slightly less now because the shares moved up a little bit, you would be missing, I think, about two-thirds of the returns picture here. So they've sent out about $46 billion in dividends. They've spent $96 billion on buybacks over the last 10 years, which has brought their share count down a lot, which means the same dividend pool goes over, as Steve was kind of hinting before, a lot fewer people, which means there's a lot more going on in dividends per share. And I'm not sure they're going to stop anytime soon. They don't look like they're in any distress. They don't look like they're in a particularly big restructuring thing. I'm expecting their share count to keep coming down and down and down. I'm expecting their dividend to keep going up, both in kind of absolute terms of amount of money coming back and in kind of, I guess, diluted terms across the number of shares. I think this is going to keep growing. Uh, If I were a dividend growth investor and I wanted something that paid a kind of all right dividend now and I thought pay more of one in the future, this would be my choice. 
Dividend growth is slowing down. Like you say, since 2015, it's been like 66%, 25%, 56%. But in the past three years, it's more like 9 8 and 10%. So the, it, the actual growth in most recent years is is slowing slightly. But like you say, average before that has been very, very high. 56%, 66% dividend growth, which has been crazy. That's like That must be when it started repaying after the crisis, right? Yeah, so 10 years ago takes us back to about 2013 or so, which is when things started really kind of working their way. And it's been working quite hard to sort of write its loan book, um, pay off, uh, sell off various bits of stuff, use that to buy back shares, uh, push its dividend along. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah, you can see in 2009, minus, 80, uh, minus 98% uh, uh, dividend growth, which is quite funny just uh just uh interesting to see in that i've seen that all there dividend growth isn't the be all and end all though it's uh pretty you you've definitely looked into bank of america are you doing some uh bank stock viewing at the minute or is this just a hobby of yours I'm sort of in two minds, to be honest. It feels a little bit like the wrong time to be buying bank stocks, but I can't help but find myself getting kind of drawn towards them. The trouble with the moment, uh, for my own kind of portfolio at the moment, and I've said this to Steve, and I've said it on this channel, and I've said it to pretty much anyone on the listen, and several people who won't, <laughs> it's kind of hard to look beyond US big tech and the fangs at the moment in terms of valuation. I mean, I own a bank. The bank I own is Citigroup. I like Bank of America here. If someone said to me, look, what's the problem with this? Why aren't you buying it? The only reason I would say is I think there might be things that are better value right now, uh, are trading at kind of better prospects right now in this particular environment. It's one of the stocks I'm annoyed at myself for not getting into in a bigger way two or three years ago during the pandemic because it was better positioned than people were giving it credit for. It was down at around $25. I did buy part of it. I subsequently sold it. I rather regret that, to be honest, but that was, I sort of regret it, sort of see it as part of a learning process, to be honest. It was just a kind of slightly further back in my thinking uh, stuff about this. And I never really put the energy in to try and figure out exactly what its competitive advantages are and so on. So uh, that's Bank of America for me anyway. You mean you get plenty of exposure to it through Berkshire Hathaway as well, though, don't you, sir? It's not like you've, uh, it's left you. No, I did kind of reason that way as well, I think, and I went off and bought MasterCard instead, yeah. which I also don't have anymore. <laughs> you got rid of MasterCard? No way. I thought everyone was buying that was the ages cards ago. back. They were buying the payment... I thought they were buying the payment processes back, though. Except for Amex. No one's buying Amex for some reason. No, that's probably my next stock for Paul. Working my way down the Berkshire Hathaway portfolio. <laughs> Yeah, interesting. I think another, this is the first time I've picked a stock, stock that you might actually kind of like, at least since that utility thing. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and just looking like at the past performance as well, and you know, it's another blue chip. I've been looking today quite a bit at um, blue chips and how they perform against the S and P five hundred. Another blue chip over ten years outperforms, and this is this really common theme. I'm wondering if. In the S&P 500, the reason why some stocks don't perform is they simply go bankrupt and the rest just outperform. And it's, it's kind of, and that's a, you know, that's just something, obviously that's not the case, but it's just really interesting that some of these stocks, particularly the, the better ones that, uh, you know, show, show great 
is it always dividend growth it's not always dividend growth but these stocks just outperform they they is it shouldn't be that hard to outperform the, the market considering every single one i'm looking at right now outperforms historically right buy everything in the world and then sell peloton and coinbase and then you'll be fine <laughs> basically you know what that's not a bad theory right it's not a bad thing to go okay buy everything and then go that sucks that sucks that sucks should pick three that you definitely know are going to fail and then you're going to outperform the market there you go and then you become one of the greatest investors ever because you've outperformed the market for 30 years just because you bought the three you didn't buy the three stocks that sucked obviously sucked yeah uh, the third one obviously is aston martin <laughs> Yeah, of course. Aston Martin. Steve, uh, what have uh, you got? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Carry on. Uh, so I'll do mine in the the way I commonly do it, where I refuse to tell you the name of it until uh, until the very end. Sometimes I even forget to do that. Uh, when I've edited back, I've realised I've not actually said the name at any point and just given somebody <laughs> a load of drivel. Um, but I have remembered to put the name in at the end here. So... Um, so this is a U.S. pharma company, which, oddly for the pharma company, is 140 years old. Um, its main drugs consist of a range of very difficult to pronounce uh, brands, but they specialize in immunology, uh, cancer, and pain. Um, you'll be pleased to know, Paul, it currently trades at 44 times forward earnings, uh, has a market cap of about or, or $340 or billion. <laughs> That's up to your lawyer. <laughs> Um, so anyway, has a, has a market cap of 340 billion. In the last five years, the stock is a triple. It's up 312%. So off that, you have every right to tell me to get lost, but I'm going to tell you that I think this is, could be severely undervalued. So set the scene. Obesity is a huge issue in the US. Uh, in the last five years, the rate of obesity uh, in America has actually risen from 30% to an incredible 42%. Uh, America's getting fatter, and this company has a drug for it. A drug that's so impressive, it's been whistle-stopped through the FDA's breakthrough and fast-track drug schemes, and could be as proved, uh, approved as early as this year after only receive, uh, receiving designation in October 2022. So it's a once-weekly drug. Uh, it's already shown to help patients lose 22.5% of their weight in company studies over a 72-week period. Got some bad news for you. Uh, I'll tell you straight up. Insurance in the US doesn't cover obesity on its own, which, you know, is a bit of a bummer. But I would argue, no, obesity is linked to a number of other problems. So let's say diabetes, liver failure, heart failure, kidney disease, sleep apnea, and other issues uh, caused by visceral fat and all of those that I've just listed are covered by insurance and this company knows that so they're actually co uh, trialing it and co-trialing it with a lot of those products they want it to be used with everything uh, and that's because the benefits are significant the drug has shown in non-diabetic patients to reduce blood sugar as if they were on a heart rate uh, blood pressure sorry as if they're on a heart rate med their lipids fall as if they're on a statin their blood sugar levels fall as if they're on diabetic medicine this is potentially a wonder drug. So I pulled out some information. Uh, Bank of America, the topical, pharma division, have uh, run the data on this. And actually on the data that they're presenting, I think they're being wildly conservative. So I looked through the, uh, the sort of limitations of the study, and they're betting that if this drug only achieves a 10% market share in the US alone on only the illnesses I listed earlier, 
that this drug will bring in $100 billion a year in revenue. And on a standard farmer margin, that's an incredible $40 billion on the bottom line, just from that tiny subsect of society there. So for the company, that would be a 6x in earnings, a 7x in revenue, uh, which makes all of those expensive metrics I read out at the beginning suddenly look cheap. So look, I hear you, pie in the sky maths, uh, a wonder drug might be really difficult for you to swallow. But I'm giving you Eli Lilly here, a company with pedigree, a company that brought insulin to the market, a company that found the polio vaccine, uh, made Prozac to help people who struggle with depression, and Cialis, a drug that helped your penis work better. And Paul, it's got a 1.25% dividend. Eli Lilly is always one of those ones, isn't it? It's just out of touch. Uh, that's. Uh, I was trying to guess the drug that you were talking about because I did read about it a couple of months ago. It's not liraglutide, is it? It's, it's, or is that like a totally different? Something like uh, that. Also yeah. goes, I'm not even going to. Yeah, all... yeah, I'm not even. <sighs> it's, 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 not even going to attempt to pronounce it. Yeah, it's either liraglutide or like. No, it's like, uh, that's got different trade names, like Victoza and, and things like that. I did think you were talking about Pfizer at first, but I wasn't sure. Eli Lilly, I don't know a lot about, I must admit. It's one of those ones which I never really looked into. So, um, yeah, uh, mainly because I think the valuation is always stupidly high, right? That's what happens when you triple in three years. They've probably had no right to really do that. Um, but they're tripling because potentially they have a wonder drug here and they have the pedigree to have brought wonder drugs like this to the market before. I mean, insulin, the polio vaccine and Prozac and Cialis were all huge drugs. And this one has a, an even more common uh, issue that it's, it's looking to solve. So uh, it could be a monster. It could be, uh, it could be nothing. Um, we talk about Biogen a few times on here as well. They also have uh, a drug for Alzheimer's that is uh, mm. probably equally as unlikely to get approved as Biogen's is, but, um, you know, again, another sort of similar similar kind of drug. It's trying to uh, attack the plaque on the brain, which I think is the the they think is the main cause of Alzheimer's. Whether or not we're, we're not entirely sure at the moment, but um, I think it could potentially be a very exciting stock if you wanted a little bit of risk in your portfolio, a bit of pharma risk. I would avoid the little the little biotechs like any of them could any of them could kick off. I think this has yeah. some real interesting risk. Well, you know, it trades like a Cathy Wood stock as well because it's uh, 46 times earnings at the moment. So Cathy uh, Wood must be looking at that going, oh, yeah, that seems like a reasonable valuation. I was going to say, look at that chart, though. Have you ever seen a chart on a big cap like that in this kind of environment that just continues going up and to the right with almost literally no volatility? It's like it like goes 2008, boom. Straight up, no, no problems uh, at all. But its earnings do that as well, and that's what you have to remember. The revenue does that. If you put, if you could put the lines straight next to each other and just add, it's it's incredible. It is an incredible company and in how how it's uh, grown over the past few years, and it's set to continue growing by looks of things as well. But wow, um, just that valuation, right? Valuation is a tough one here, and I think we have to learn from the last two years. Valuation right? is tough where it currently is i mean it's always a feature of these things and steve is dead right to point this out that with big cap pharma stuff eli Lilly has a market cap of about 338 billion from what i can see of it 
it's difficult to move the needle significantly when you have a market cap that size. So how are you going to grow your earnings sort of 10%? You're going to have to add something quite significant on there. But this could be that, right? I mean, he talked about uh, a 40 billion on the bottom line. That immediately takes us to a PE of uh, under 10, which is about Seven. right. And that's kind of by itself uh, pretty much here. So uh, there's kind of a good deal of optimism coming through on this sort of thing. I was actually more positive about the outside the drug than Steve was. The last thing I heard about it was back in November. They had some pretty yeah. positive looking trial data and you know i'm not qualified to um evaluate the likelihood of these things and not particularly qualified to judge the efficacy of trial results but the only bear point i have on this and you might take this as quite a loose bear point i think it's quite devastating to be honest is that i know kramer is quite fond of this um and he thinks <laughs> that this is a significantly better or uh, better organization than biogen and he thinks that their alzheimer's drug is the real deal now what Kramer knows about Alzheimer's drugs, I suspect you could write on the top of his head. But um, it does kind of strike me that there might be room for kind of optimism here where there perhaps wasn't. And I wouldn't let I, I'm sort of torn between not wanting to get fooled twice on Alzheimer's drugs, uh, like with the Biogen thing, and also not wanting to suddenly think, well, look, I know how Alzheimer's drugs work because I've seen one example of these sorts of things. So. I think that I, I can see what Steve's getting at here with some decent sort of upside. Kathy Wood, by the way, has no interest in this stock at all on the grounds that it has earnings. The other thing I was going to say is that there is also a competitor as well. So there is another risk. There is um, Novo Nordisk. Mm. Uh, they also have uh, a similar drug, um, but uh, has proven in similar the early studies to be... Yes, similar valuation, but their their drug is not as effective. I think on their patients are around the 17 to 18% mark and, you know... Why would you want to lose seventeen to eighteen when you can lose twenty two and a half? I think that's uh, that's definitely yeah, it's <laughs> definitely more beneficial to me at least. I think they're also an insulin bunch, yeah, aren't they, Novo Nordisk? I mean, when you were describing the company at the beginning, the you did say it was a U.S. listed. Yeah, you said it was a U.S. listed stock, and I knew it was Eli Lilly, by the way, because you told me before. But I, I would have been at first torn between those two, thinking insulin and uh, an obesity drug. So I think Novo Nordisk has kind of both of those things, and I would have got there based on you said U.S. rather than Danish, basically, which is what Novo Nordisk is, I think. So hmm. I was kind of wondering in that situation, the the kind of rub on uh, Novo Nordisk is that people refuse to. I think there's. There's doubts over whether that can be used to just say, here you are, you're obese, um, take this drug, versus we can use this to kind of combat side effects of other things that involve weight gain. was the last I heard about this. This is quite a while back now, though. What's the binary? I know you've touched on it already, but what's the binary risk here? You know, particularly with the Alzheimer's drug as well, you've talked about that. But what what happens if these this drug, you know, every, everyone's obviously pricing this in here, to be a massive earner for Eli Lilly, but what if you know it doesn't get okayed for um, reducing uh, heart disease for whatever reason because it doesn't do, do it directly, or but or it doesn't get it for reducing blood pressure? What happens? The yeah, this collapses basically. Right? There's, there's a very real risk that the side effects become uh, more problematic than you know than the causes that that the drug is solving. So I think in that case, if that was to happen, I would say Eli Lilly is very likely a cut in half. Uh, that would probably bring it to about twenty odd times earnings, which it still has a fairly promising pipeline outside of this. I was obviously disregarding all of it because we've got essentially a hundred billion 
dollar drug here potentially which is a uh, you know about three times what the next best-selling drug has ever achieved so this is this is the the sexy part of it but eli Lilly still has a pipeline to maintain a normal valuation it's just that mm-hmm. at the moment it's not trading at a normal violation because potentially it has a wonder drug and i think they're not they've not baked in the full amount of that nowhere near the full amount of that price. No, i think i think they've got 25 percent of that wonder drug coming in but i don't think that actually represents that there's a 25 percent chance of this actually going ahead so uh, i'm you know i'm leaning towards that this goes through i wonder about the 100 billion uh dollars a year that's a lot of money uh but it could happen it could definitely happen and you know like i say i wonder you know when when insulin was brought to the market that was a wonder drug back in its time and i wonder if we ever thought it would be as big as it is today so it could happen it's the it's the risk the risk 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 we've always got to go back to risk haven't we we've we're probably are we a little bit late to this party here at this uh, 46 times earnings and now you're taking on more of the risk based on the outcome of these drugs drugs trials and the fda uh okaying it if you got it into it a little bit earlier when it when it came out, you could take less risk and even further back, you know, to 2008 when you didn't even know the drug was on on the coming onto the market. That's when you're taking the least risk. So here for me, I think it is risk, 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 and this is uh, at these valuations particularly risk on. I don't think it's it's a risk in the sense that Eli Lilly's going bust anytime soon. It's just that you, if it doesn't go well, you you're putting yourself at risk of underperforming here based on outcomes and unfortunately that's how uh pharmaceutical stocks work right it's a little bit i mean you made the point paul that there's kind of risk and there's risk with these uh things so compare that with something like a stock called Avacta, which is uh, from what i can see of it the kind of latest story stock that we've been systematically ignoring on this show because we tend to be a bit further detached from kind of meme stocks than uh, than most kind of i suppose more on point podcasts but this is a company that has a a potential cancer drug going on here i think it's in about phase one trials or something so it's very very early on this but people have been going absolutely mad on it and it's up sort of 98 percent over the last five years 50 percent over the last year or so it's really been flying here but aside from its cancer drug from what i or its candidate cancer drug i guess i should call it it really got nothing um at least with eli Lilly, as, (laughs) as you were saying uh staying away from the kind of very small biotechs look there's huge upside on a big cancer drug in a phase one trial if it hits right but there's also there's a much much greater risk than there is with something like an eli Lilly, which has a lot of resources i feel like their kind of breakthrough drug will come the question is kind of when and which not uh whether uh i suppose so look i ran the maths on this what's the yeah i was going to say what's the what's the outcome uh, rate of a uh, stage one trial oh very very low yeah very low they almost yeah. all fell 99.99 percent of them fell just just going back to eli lily valuation i did run some maths on it at work today and uh, i think if the if the drug fails i think there's a 50 percent haircut essentially coming to eli lily but if the drug actually comes through i think there's actually a 300 percent upside uh, over 10 years wow. which is what the, the drug would take to uh, to come out because i think essentially if you add that 100 billion on in 10 years you're looking at about p of seven i think a drug of that kind of size of the company turned out about profit would 
we had a tractor PE of about 21. So it's crude, but uh, I think that's kind of uh, what it would be. The other thing is as well is that that drug opens up a realm of possibilities for um, for Eli Lilly because they become a very, very large company at that point with a very, very large amount of cash flow. They could almost go out and buy any other pharma stock they want at that point. So it, the, the risk... Vector. Exactly, yeah, Vector. The risk is it's one of those stocks where it could go either way. It's probably a fun stock for us all to sit on the sidelines and watch and then come back to this show in 10 years time and go bollocks should have bought it no i like to use these i i love to use these ones which are a little bit too at risk to sit back watch tesla great example oh my god how good is that to predict that two years ago and go that is overvalued that's going to come down it's great to watch great to learn from and i'm lucky that i'm not involved in it uh, and I can take that forward now and I can be Chuck Carnival in 50 years and go, look, they, they said I was an idiot for not buying Tesla. And look what happened to it. And it's going to happen to happen again in 10 years and it happened again in 20 years. I think uh, Eli Lilly here would be a really good. It's a really good opportunity to learn here. And I think we can these stocks that are entering these like high P.E. ratios due to uh great pipeline and things like that we can sit back and we can you know it's probably more valuable to you to learn from this rather than actually be in the stock and you know fomo into it just because of these drugs and i, I like that i like that narrative here in the market and i think it shows discipline and i think it shows poise and i think uh, some of these stocks we can learn from let's be honest we're Adam, not going to be doing this be... in 10 years time are we we're just going to be yeah, three okay. cartoons of our heads and chat gpt running the whole thing <laughs> I'd much, yeah, I'd much well, sooner be in the position of an Eli Lilly shareholder five years ago. The guy with the three hundred percent gain was going, "Let it happen, <laughs> let it happen." Yeah, he either is. way, he is. He's, sit, he's sitting there, he's three hundred percent up. He's like, "Oh, I could lose half of this, but uh, does it matter?" Yeah, that's that's the position you want to be in, and that's where mm. the risk off is in this position as well. Uh, great company, great stock. Uh, uh, just, just the risk is too on at this point. Sure, that's our show. I promise we're real people, not just an AI chatbot here. If you enjoyed it, please do give us a like, give us a subscribe, and do check out our highlights show. Uh, we've got a separate YouTube channel where highlights you can channel. see some of the best bits of this, and not just the kind of garbage that we put in the middle of it. So Casper works really hard on that. Go check out the highlights channel. Thank you all for watching. We'll see you next week, unless one of us has become a robot. Bye for now.